right. Good day, Ann Arbor and the world. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and this is It's Hot in Here, and I'm your host, Gina Getham. I'm Rachel Chatterton. And I'm Aviva Glazer. And we have an extra hot studio today. I should also say we have Shannon Brines and Paul Mansour in the engineering booth ready to give us the, the voice of wisdom. The whole team is here. Yes. We are here to give you a good show today. Uh, we are joined by Dr. Uh, Andrew Hoffman, whose soon-to-be-released book, Builder's Apprentice, a memoir of a builder, I want to call it just a memoir, actually, uh, is coming out soon, I believe, end of this week or, or beginning of next. And we're all very excited about it. And it's a, it's a turn in the direction of, of the writing uh, you've done, Andrew, and we're looking forward to getting into that soon. But before we do, I should also say thank you um, again to everyone who pledged during the WCBN fundraiser over the past week and a half. We really did a great job, and we couldn't have done it without your support. And thanks to all who came out to the WCBN post-fundraiser bash. It was the most fun radio event I have simply ever had and the coolest thing I've been to in a long time. So, that getting said, we should announce the word of the day. The word of the day today is apprentice. That's right. Oh, don't leave me hanging there. <laughs> so if you hear the word of the day at home, feel free to, to, there yes, we to go. scream, like to that. laugh, uh, to let out a little bit of joy uh, to get you going. It'll feel nice. Yes. But before we get into all the positivity um, and, and life-changing experiences in Dr. Hoffman's book, we're going to talk about chemicals and disaster. Just to give get a little downer <laughs> to start the week off right. And then we're going to make it happen nicely. So to get us warmed up, we're going to listen to Blackalicious. And this is Chemical Calisthenics. Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect. Lyrical oxidation. Your irrelevant mass spectrograph. Your electron volt. Atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons. Gamma rays, thermal cracking. Cyclotron, any and every mic you're on. Transuranium, if y'all was uranium. Molecules, spontaneous combustion. Law of definite proportion gaining weight. I'm every element around. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc When I wrap your thing, iodine, nitrate, activate Right uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in Careful, careful with those ingredients They could explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground Let it blow, yo, just let it go, get back CaOH2 lime water solution of calcium hydroxide slaughtered it. CaO lime will make bleach powder. Galvanic metal beats stump out louder. Dry ICO square refrigerant and O2 makes you laugh. It's laughing gas. You buy this. I'm muriatic acid glue. I'm like oil of the troil. The king of chemicals. Energy, heat, gas, weight, all your mass. Chemical change, ice point, melt all your wraps. Atomic weight, cold shocks when you call, we laugh. Syllable gas keep going way beyond. Beyond ammonia, with buzz and fill the ambiance. A diabetic process, out of calm your ass. After I warm your ass, I give you sodium silicate and O2S103, a water glass. Borax flux, you're full of brimstone sulfur Boracic acid, hip-hop preserver CO2 could never put away the fire Style aromas is scientific The lyrical views would be connected To teach you chemical calisthenics Three fundamental particles, protons, electrons, neutrons, protons are charged positive. By now, you guessed electrons are probably negatively charged. Neutrons don't follow either neutral in the middle. Only no apology. Centered, unmoved by yin and yang ideology. Neutron bomb stars, electron theory. Cosmic musical radioactivity. Different points and joints within infinity. Oxygen and hydrogen alive within all types of energy. 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 Inside a world, inside a world, inside a universe, inside of me existing all Oh, I can't see it. Nitrogen cycle, ionization heavier than electromotive metals that weigh over a ton. This has been a chemist, black, delicious creation. Clean out your desk, put your papers away, cause class is almost done. All aboard for the night train. This is chemistry plus catalytics. I'm calcium plus potassium, magnesium, newspaper of sodium, sulfate, your solvent, chloroform, remedy from the normal glycerin, purest form, titanium, brain is blown away. 
Wow. Now, if that doesn't get you warmed up to talk about chemicals <laughs> and toxic disasters, I don't know what does. So that leads us into today's Toxic Tangent. And for today's Toxic Tangent, as Gina said, we are going to be talking about chemicals and chemical disasters. And one of the most well-known chemical disasters was uh, it happened about 25 years ago in Bhopal, India. Uh, in December 1984, uh, in Bhopal, thousands of tons of deadly chemicals and deadly chemical gas leaked from Union Carbide's pesticide plant uh, in central India. About half a million people were exposed the night of the leak. Um, almost 20,000 people died, and um, thousands upon thousands of other people had long-lasting effects over the next 20 years. Um, so this was really a wake-up moment for the chemical industry, and it was really one of the most significant disasters um, of the last few of the last 25 years. Um, and the story doesn't actually end that night because uh, it's the effects of this chemical and this disaster have have really lasted for the people of Bhopal. Uh, recent tests reveal the groundwater near the plant um, is laced with carcinogens, um, and these are known to cause birth defects and chronic illnesses. Drinking water uh, from a well near the site showed contamination levels 500 times greater than allowed by the World Health Organization. Uh, and people there are really angry. Uh, one resident and Book author Dominique Lapierre writes, My anger comes from the fact that after 25 years, the toxic effluent which has been left around the factory is still there. Every time it rains, the toxic effluent goes into the underground water supply, which supplies the wells. People are obliged to drink poisoned water. Uh, and people are also upset because they haven't been compensated. Dow Chemical uh, now owns Union Carbide. They bought it a decade ago, and they uh, have repeatedly claim to have resolved all of the claims um, for people who've been harmed by this incident. But uh, activists say that the compensation has not been nearly enough and has only reached a small subset of the people. Amnesty International has gotten involved, and they say that Bhopal is not just a human rights tragedy from the last century. It is a human rights travesty today. And here to talk about Bhopal, we have uh, Rachel Long, who is uh, a junior in the program in the environment here at the University of Michigan. And she's actually going to Bhopal this summer to do some work. So, Rachel, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about what you're going to be doing this summer? Sure. Thanks, Aviva. Um, my name is Rachel, and I am going to be going to Bhopal this summer through a grant with the Center for South Asian Studies. Um, to work at the Sampavna Clinic, which is um, a clinic established in Bhopal by survivors and their allies um, in response to the woefully inadequate uh, compensation from uh, the Indian government and from Dow Chemical Union Carbide. Um, the clinic is unique in that it does not accept corporate or government charity. Um, it's entirely run by volunteers um, and through private donations, mostly from Great Britain. Um, so they're they're able to be so independent because they grow 60% of the medication they prescribe there. Um, they use both Western and traditional Ayurvedic healing techniques um, to treat um, the survivors of the disaster and their family members. And treatment is 100% free for anyone affected by the disaster, which is also really cool. Um, so I'll be going to work in the herb garden there, where they grow these medications, um, to volunteer in the garden and to uh, document and learn about the practices used to um, grow these herbs and transform them into medications that are useful to people there. So that's what I'll be doing in Bhopal. And hopefully I'll be able to learn more about their, their model at the clinic, too, how they manage to be so self-sufficient. So It seems interesting. What sorts of plants are, are able to be used medicinally to treat these chemicals uh, in, in our bodies, their bodies? Um, well, apparently there are hundreds of different kinds that they use at this clinic, um, and I'm not very familiar with most of them. But even some simple things like turmeric, I'm, I'm sure we're familiar with turmeric, um, it, it can be uh, used as an anti-inflammatory, um, it an has antiseptic properties, things like that. Um, that. That's just one example. I don't know very much about others. Um, but they also use a lot of yoga there, too. I forgot to mention that, um, because some of the... Um, chronic pain that people there experience can only be treated through through sort of the, the relaxation and um and sort of physical stimulation that yoga provides so wow and i know that a, a lot of the the children that have been in, born in bhopal since the incident happened have had birth defects so i imagine that um 
the clinic is going to be doing long-term care to help uh, these children who are suffering. So yeah, definitely. it's really great work. Yeah, I'm really excited to be there. Um, definitely a lot of great people doing excellent things. So it's not all depressing, um, though it's still really bad. People are taking steps to, to correct things. Absolutely. And, and there certainly was compensation um, for many of the victims, I think around 500,000. Of course, you get much, much more uh, the allocations for, for one-time payouts if, if you had a deceased member of your family. But there were major problems with being registered and um, children under the age of 18 weren't considered uh, to be to, to have claims also also to that money uh, as it was paid out. Um, and as uh, Kim Fortune, who actually studied uh, Bhopal and, and worked as an activist there in the mid-90s, said that this case isn't over. And, and now we're over 20 years ago since uh, it was finished. And the, as, as Aviva said, the, inte- the effects continue to be, to be felt. So. That's right. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming, coming on the show today and for telling us about your work this, this summer as an apprentice. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> in <laughs> Shannon's uh, waving some noisemakers over there. Um, but we really wish you uh, all the best this summer and let us know how it goes. Come back on the show next year and, and tell us what you learned. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Well, along the similar lines of Bhopal, there have been some major um, environmental events that have really served to catalyze uh, movement and and corporate action around particular uh, new ways of doing business. Certainly, chemicals have made our life wonderful in many ways. Better living uh, through chemicals, I believe, was a slogan at one point. But another one of these events is Love Canal um, that that Dr. Hoffman has wrote about uh, in his own work. And essentially what happened there, as far as I know, so Love Canal was a, a residential neighborhood. Mm-hmm, that's right. Outside, uh, or in Niagara Falls mm-hmm. uh, area. And uh, a newspaper actually discovered that there was about 21,000 tons of toxic waste that had been buried beneath this neighborhood. Hmm. And, and not just a neighborhood, but a school was actually right. built on this toxic waste. That's right. Oh, my goodness. And so people began to see the effects of this and, and sort of uh, uh, really became... A public outcry. And one of the cool things about this is that uh, it was really women that were leading this, the, the activism on this. Um, and they really publicized what was happening and pushed the government to, to help them out. And it actually, uh, not to, I don't mean to take away from no, Dr. Hoffman's it. research. Because <laughs> no, no, I don't know it. about the corporate side of things, but uh, um, certainly it catalyzed uh, the government um, and legislation, and it led to some of the legislation that we have. The Superfund Act was um, pretty much due to Love Canal. That's right. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Carter running for office when this was happening. Right. That helped a lot, too. <laughs> a lot of factors there. Well, there's been, there, there are, we could have no question in saying that these events were disasters that then led to something different. But I was wondering what makes a disaster and what doesn't. Uh, and I looked it up in the dictionary. Uh, disasters are a sudden events such as an accident or natural catastrophe that causes great damage or loss of life. Okay, well, what's great damage or loss of life? This, the example sample uh, sentence, 159 people died in the disaster. The disaster struck within minutes of takeoff. So that seems to have put somewhat of a numerical uh, figure on this. But I think there's been, been many events uh, throughout even recent history where more than 159 people have died, and yet they haven't entered our mind as, as collective events that have, have then changed things. Mm-hmm. And some of your work has provided um, insight on this. Yeah. And I wonder if you could give us some of that. Well, I, I, what I think is interesting about Love Canal is how it changed our culture. Mm. And people don't have to die to have an event that changes our culture. Um, what happened at Love Canal was the product of our naivete back in the 40s. Mm. Um, there was an open pit that George Love actually dug to connect the upper and lower Niagara rivers to create his city of the future. He went bankrupt. He left it. Um, Hooker Chemical needed a place to dump toxic waste. They used it. It was actually a perfect place because it was clay-lined. It wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, and that's what you did in those days. And they put it in, and then the city of Niagara Falls decided to expand, and they said, we want this property. We're gonna, you're going to sell it to us, or we're going to take it by eminent domain. So there's a lot of complicity in here. Um, Hooker sold it to him for a dollar and said, uh, don't dig here. There's bad stuff. We don't know what, although there's, you know, it's reasonable to expect that that you know, would not be healthy. 
the city took it over, put a cap on it, or the company put a cap on it. The city promptly punctured it by putting a school on top of it, running sewer lines through it, running a neighborhood around it. And uh, most importantly, they put a highway at the end of it, which stopped the migration of groundwater. So it turned into a bathtub and overflowed into people's basements and uh, moved around the neighborhood, causing all kinds of problems um, that uh, Lois Gibbs called a lot of attention to, mm-hmm. happening at a time when Jimmy Carter was running for office. And out of it, we had the Superfund Act. Uh, it, it came at the heels of, um, or it was quickly followed by Valley of the Drums and Times Beach, Missouri, these other sensational hazardous waste sites. And I think what's significant about Love Canal is that prior to that, environmental issues emerged from the smoke stack down the street. They didn't come from under your house. And this was brand new for the American public. And it scared the heck out of everybody thinking, what's underneath my ground? Um, The interesting follow-up story to Love Canal is that uh, they're moving people back in, that they, uh, they did the best they could in cleaning up the area, but there's still background contamination. And they decided it's clean enough for people to move back in. So you buy a house with a stipulation in the deed saying you know what's here. You will not sue the government. And uh, Mark sell them at 10 to 15% below market value. And they were snatched up very quickly. And uh, much to the outrage of Lois Gibbs, who's very, very angry about this, um, saying that there was never proper cleanup done. And one thing that that these events seem to to do is to shift uh, in many ways and add to the existing sort of environmental movement a very important aspect of human health and how human health is is related to the environment around mm-hmm. us and also perhaps <clears throat> that we don't know the the possible effects of of every chemical. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's when these events occur that they suddenly challenge our dominant conceptions. They've been happening for a long time. Minamata in Japan, there was a a bay where they just dumped mercury and people just started having birth defects. Or the London smog um, from all the burning of that soft coal. There were a lot of deaths from that. But you just accepted that that's the way you had to do things. So a combination of these events that call attention to, to problems in new ways and technologies to deal with it, you know, that that's what changes. Well, we like change here. <laughs> and it's hot in here. Well, we're going to go to a quick tune, uh, play you just a little bit of Buried at the Love Canal. This is Joshua Marcus uh, from a little album he put out on environmental justice. Thank you. 
This is It's Hot in Here, and this is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. If you want to check out past episodes, or you happen to not be listening, or you have, yeah, you have to go, go to wcbn.org slash hot in here, and you can check out our archives and selected links that we bring you to accompany your listening experience. Well, it's around noon. We get hungry sometimes, and sometimes we wonder, what should we have for lunch? But what's he going to do when the water dry up and the fish ain't biting no more? Hmm. Well, once again, for the second week in a row, I'm actually not going to recommend that you eat fish like we do every time on this segment. Our fish populations are dwindling, but we still need uh, to have delicious protein in our lives. And for those of you that aren't morally opposed to eating meat, I certainly recommend that you try some bison, otherwise known as buffalo. It is lower in fat than even chicken. Uh, as well as calories, lower in cholesterol, and has more iron and vitamin B than either beef, pork, chicken, or one of my favorite sockeye salmon. So I recommend you get yourself on down to the Ann Arbor Farmer's Market on Thursday or Saturday and pick you up some delicious bison. Wednesday or Saturday. Wednesday or Saturday, yeah. And the bison that you can get at the Ann Arbor Farmer's Market is grass-fed, which most bison tends to be, I think, though I'm sure it's possible to raise bison in a feedlot, but... Um, it's it's going to be much better for you. Absolutely. I had some this weekend, and I cannot get enough of it. I'll be back there for more. That sounds delicious. That is for sure. Wednesdays don't start till May. Thank you, Shannon. Okay, so just go on Saturday. Uh, you're <laughs> going to have to buy a lot of bison to make it last throughout the week, though, because you'll want to eat it a lot. All right, so we're going to get in to talk to Doc, Dr. Hoffman about his work. Um, and to do that, I think we should listen to a happy tune, and this is Brick House by the Commodores. <laughs> professor at the Ross School of Business and the School of Natural Resources Environment at the University of Michigan, and I believe the assistant or associate director of the Herb Institute. The associate director, yep. Global sustainability. <laughs> what a wonderful project. Hmm. We're really, really, really into global sustainability. So you've written over seven books, and this is now your eighth book uh, coming out. And this is about your personal experiences, um, sort of, uh, I think it's been described as a coming-of-age story in many ways, kind of moving against uh, the expectations uh, that that perhaps society has for us and doing what what we really feel. Um, I'd I'd like to actually start talking about the book by by giving a a quote uh, that, that you present. Um, in uh, before the first chapter, I believe. This is from Romans 12, 2. <laughs> yes. What a time for the screensaver. I know, right? It says, Do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but be an original and different person with a fresh newness in all you think and do. Then you will be truly satisfied in what is good, acceptable, and perfect. 
Well, that's a way to start this off. It isn't a religious book. <laughs> <laughs> there are many you lessons right to be learned. New Testament right there. Yeah, I just like the quote. Overwhelming. <laughs> it's a beautiful quote. <clears throat> it is. It is. It's just, you know, you know I, I see so many people conforming to the pressures from outside. And this book was a period in my life where I did something completely outrageous. Even when I look back on it, I'm, I'm shocked that I did it. Um, and I, I think it's a lesson for others to do what you want to do and not feel the pressures to do what you think you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Even from people who think they have their best interest, your best interest in mind. <clears throat> I think some of us have perhaps even faced that in our own career choices to, to work in nonprofit fields or, or um, even even some to, to in the particular fields that we are studying now. Mm-hmm. Um, and your book is coming out on Huron River Press um, in the coming days. That's right. But for those of us who... Uh, aren't aren't familiar with with these choices that you made. What was this progression? Where did you find yourself after you graduated from college? Like every... (laughs) I'll give you the short... Every good uh, person should. synopsis. I mean, I I went to college uh, because I was supposed to. It was grades 13, 14, 15, and 16. I picked chemical engineering. I have no idea why. Uh, I didn't even think about what a chemical engineer did until I graduated. Sounds very employable. <laughs> yeah. My father was very pleased with that. Good. He always sent me the, the salary projections for chemical engineers. and But it wasn't until I got out, I was like, holy smokes, what am I doing? What is this for? There's a wonderful line. Tim Hall at uh, BU studies careers, and he has a great line from someone who is like 45, and, and she suddenly came to a realization. She said, oh, my God, my career was picked by an 18-year-old. And, and, you know, what was the thinking behind that? And so I got out, and um, I was going to clean up the environment, and so I took a job with the EPA and promptly hated it. I just, I was not suited to be in the government. I despised it. And, but decided that what I was supposed to do then was be hiring government, and that will make things better. So I applied to grad school and public policy, got into Harvard and Berkeley, and froze. I just couldn't do it. Um, there was a real block, and uh, I had helped a friend build a deck. I got a charge out of it, answered an ad in the paper, took a job as a carpenter on Nantucket, I sat down with my parents and said, I'm not going to Harvard or Berkeley, I'm going to be a carpenter in Nantucket, which was an interesting conversation. <laughs> and uh, within two years, I was supervising a 29,000-square-foot house in southwestern Connecticut. So just the brass tacks of the story of learning how to build houses like that is... Um, is a is a great story, but then beyond it, you know the the the, the identity shift I went through, the idea of pursuing a calling—that's a, a major underlying theme of the book. Absolutely, and I can't wrap my head around what a twenty-nine thousand square foot house looks big. like. Very big. <laughs> the architects, just as a joke, drew it up. I think as a thirty-unit condo, and it worked quite nicely. It didn't have a lot of rooms; it just had really big rooms. Um, uh, the living room, the great room, uh, we measured something like 25 feet by 50 feet with a 16-foot ceiling. Um, but indoor pool, indoor gym, servants' quarters, four-car garage, 800-amp service. Um, it was, but it was beautifully designed. It was designed uh, in the shingle style. Um, I was sent to Newport to take a look at the casino and other projects by uh, McKim, uh, McKim Mead and White. Mm. Um, so it was a particular style. It was very beautiful. Excellent. We'll be getting into more of that, but along the lines of uh, not following in society's step, we're actually going to listen to a bit of the Talking Heads once in a lifetime.
here with Andy Hoffman talking about his new book, Builder's Apprentice, a memoir. What? Ooh. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was ready for that <laughs> And another quote from the book. This is from Wa- Ralph Waldo Emerson. Each man has his own vocation. His talent is his call. There is one direction in which all is open to him. So I suppose my first question now is, why write a memoir now? Um, most people seem to, to write memoirs from their deathbeds, and you certainly look very healthy. <laughs> I don't think you have to wait till you're dying to, to, to write a memoir if you have a, a life story that, uh, it has to be more than just the events of the story, there has to be a deeper, re, you know, a story, you know, a theme behind it. I wrote this 20 years after building those houses, and if I had just written it right after, it would just be a story about the, um, you know, the mechanics of building a house. But I was able to think more deeply about what it meant for me in my life and what it could mean for others. Um, I did structure it around the idea of the, the process that a man goes through to become a monk. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opening is a postulant. You, you go into the monastery and you try out the lifestyle. And then you leave and you um, live in the real world. It's called discernment and decide whether you want to go back. Then you go back as a novice and then become a master. And I took that job as a carpenter on a house in Nantucket uh, for a very powerful executive of a corporation. And... Uh, and it was like a, being a tourist. And then I went back to engineering, what I was trained to do, and still hated it. And then went back and really took on building in a serious way as a novice. And then I was uh, the master builder. And um, so I think there's something there. There's, a, there's something others can learn from. And I, I personally, I much prefer um, nonfiction to fiction. I much prefer to read stories about real people than these artificial people of um, popular novels of the day. I find them much more inspirational and much more challenging. And and useful. And useful. And in, in many ways. Right. So what compelled you to start building houses? I don't know. Big question. It was a gut. Yeah, it was something. just in the gut. It was just, uh, I was young enough that uh, it didn't matter. You know, I I started as a lark. I'll just do it for the summer. I mean, Nantucket's not a bad place to be for the summer. Um, but it was just something that got me really excited the way chemical engineering never did. And uh, and I just loved it. I just loved the feeling, and I still do. I mean, my, my neighbors laugh at me that my house is a project, not a home. I mean, I'm constantly working on it, and it, it's tremendously satisfying. Is there something about work that you're actually physically engaged with, mm-hmm. whereas maybe you could physically be engaged with arranging molecules on a desktop <laughs> or something like that? But. Well, it's, yeah, it's a, there's the satisfaction of seeing it change every day. Um, there's a satisfaction of knowing that this is, you know, good work. If someone walked into one of my houses and said, this is a piece of junk, I'd look them dead in the eye and say, you don't know what you're talking about. If someone grabbed one of my books today and said, this is a piece of junk, I'd feel compelled to say, you know, why do you think that? You know, I saw a really great interview, I read an interview with Mike Rowe, you know, the guy from Dirty Jobs. Mm. He's a very smart, thoughtful man. And he, 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 he said, you know, the people in the trades are the most self-actualized people, self-actualized people out there. Because they come in, there's a problem, they fix it, thank you very much, ma'am, and they, they leave. And it's out of their mind, and they're done. And, you know, in academics, it's never done. It's never done. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was going to be my question. How how does this this building that you do you do this mostly in your free time? Now, yeah, yeah. What do you do all day long? Well, and I, how does that um, kind of complement the building that you do? Well, I mean, I love writing, and when I was a builder, I, I wonder what my life would be like if I'd never left building. Um, uh, and it, it could have turned out that way. I, I, I never read, and I didn't know I could write, and I love writing. I really, which is evidenced by you know the number of books and articles I've read, and I enjoy teaching. Um, I enjoy influencing uh, young people in their lives, and I think this book is is a little out of the, the, the track of my academic writing, but it is teaching. I'm trying to teach. The audience for this is um, the young people in my classrooms who I see uh, feeling tremendous pressure to, to build their resume. I see kids starting to build their resume from eighth grade now. I mean, what you're teaching somebody is that the measure of the quality of your life is measured by somebody else evaluating it on a piece of paper, and that's a horrible lesson to teach. What I'm trying to say here is, you know, do do what what turns you on, and and you need to take some time to figure out what that is, and you'll live a much more satisfied life. You may not get rich. This is not, you know, it's not necessarily the path to riches, but it'll be your life, and what? that's the key. You come to the end and say, "I live somebody else's life." You know, the Talking Heads song, "How did I get here?" I mean, yeah. that's that's what it's all about. You may not get rich in money. Yeah. <gasps> There, there are other things to be rich in. <laughs> well, we're going to, to listen to a brief excerpt uh, from the movie Say Anything. This is one of my favorite quotes from a movie of all time. And then we'll see uh, what advice Andy has for, for Lloyd Dobler when he's thinking about his future. What are we plans for the future? Spend as much time possible with Diane before uh, she leaves? Seriously, Lloyd. I'm totally and completely serious. No, really. You mean our career? Um, I don't know. I've, I've <clears throat> thought about this quite a bit, sir, and I, I would have to say, considering what's waiting out there for me, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. So uh, my father's in the army. He wants me to join, but I can't work for that corporation. Um, so what I've been doing lately is kickboxing, which is a uh, new sport, but I think it's got a good future. As far as career longevity, I don't really know because you know you can't really tell. You're eight and six as a fighter, you know it's no good. You know you have to be great, but I can't really tell if I'm great until I've had a couple of pro fights. But I haven't been knocked down yet. I don't know. I can't figure it out tonight, so I'm just going to hang with your daughter. Yeah. <laughs> so hang out with your girlfriend and kickbox? or. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a curveball. Uh, I, 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 boy. You know, what he's trying to do, I guess, is articulate his, his ideology, his philosophy for what's going to guide his career. And I, and I think that's important. Um, I see students with the best of intentions come to me and say, you know, what position can I go into to have the most impact and, or make the most difference? And, and I say, wrong question. Because I can tell you, okay, you want to make the most impact? Go be an accountant for an oil company. And then you can really change things. And if you don't like crunching numbers, you will die. You will, you will become an alcoholic. You will become depressed. Um, you have to find a place that fits you, and then you will grow, and you will, you will, you will become the best you can be. Um, and that's different for everybody. It could be raising a family. It could be uh, any number of things. Uh, you know, on the area of the environment, I, I, you know, I think students have to think carefully about um, what kind of environment they want to be in to, to, to realize their goals. You know, you can go into um, an organization like Patagonia. Everyone gets it. Your impact, you'll be surrounded by wonderful people. Your impact's going to be tiny. Or you can go to ExxonMobil. You're going to be surrounded by a lot of people who don't get it, and you're going to be fighting the good fight. You can have big impact, but it's a hard slog. You know, what kind of person are you? Um, what environment do you thrive in? And then, then go there. And, you know, so Lloyd may start kickboxing. That doesn't mean he's going to be kickboxing for the rest of his life. But the, the, the key is he's choosing his life. And he's not going to let someone else choose it for him. Although I do question the idea of someone wrapping their life around someone else to give them that meaning. Uh, that, that sounds dangerous to me. I completely agree with that, that tack as well. Yeah, you're healthier if, if you both have your, your own goals. Mm. And directions, etc. 
We're going to listen to a few moments of the Dave Matthews Band, Ants Marching, which is a favorite song of Andy's. And then we'll be uh, here to have uh, Paul explain it all for us. about something we need to know in the world. He explains it all for us. Okay, world, how you doing? Uh, Paul here. I want to talk about solar panels today. Uh, But first, clear your minds and imagine a large boat uh, sailing over the water. Its sails catch the wind, moving the boat forward. Kind of like a pinwheel in your garden or a windmill, the wind pushes, causing motion. Well, light works in the same way. There are small particles in light that push against solar panels, generating electricity. Light is composed of photons, very small bits that collide with the electrons in solar panels, and these photons push the electrons around, creating a current of electricity. So, a problem with solar panels is that they don't catch enough photons. Imagine that boat again, but instead of stretched, taut sails grabbing the wind, the sails are full of holes, as if made out of gauze or cheesecloth. Each panel can only capture a small portion or wavelength of light. Most solar panels average between 5 to 18% efficiency, which means they let too many photons escape. However... New research out of Caltech has produced a very efficient solar panel, one that captures between 90 to 100%, uh, in best situation, 100% of photons. The Caltech researchers have housed thin wires in a flexible polymer, or plastic. When light, composed of photons, shines on this new solar panel, it doesn't escape right away. Instead, the photons bounce around inside of the polymer, where they eventually collide with the electrons and the wires, causing an electric current. If we go back to the boat on the water, they've managed to harness much more wind with a full billowing sail. Electricity is just moving electrons, and if we remember that, we can invent all sorts of new ways to get them going. And we can learn from them, too. Sometimes when life gets tough, remember that you can just stand out in the light and feel the movement from within. Would you marry me anyway? 
had some extra tambourine playing there in, in the booth. Thank you, Paul. That was a wonderful uh, segment and, and a seamless uh, transition back in here. This is a Totten here, and this is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. You can check out our archives at wcbn.org slash hot in here. And we're here with Andy Hoffman talking about his upcoming released book, Builder's Apprentice, a memoir. Holler! <laughs> <laughs> So I'm wondering, what makes a good home? Hmm. If you're building a home, what, what makes it solid, both structurally and, and for, for your enjoyment? Hmm. Um, I like can, a house that's interesting. It's a personal question. Exactly. Right? What do you like in a house? I, 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 have, I have a joke that uh, an interesting house is a house where you have to ask where the bathroom is. Um, <laughs> if, you know, a lot of these like mansions, you can walk in, and uh, I know the layout when you walk in the front door. You've got that standard two-story atrium with the chandelier, the paste glass. This stairway going up, the great rooms to the right, the formal dining rooms to the left. You go straight through, and you're into the the other parts of the house. Um, uh, you know, the the houses that I built were all totally custom. Um, the owners hired an architect. Some of them had engineers, structural engineers. The twenty nine thousand square foot house had a steel infrastructure, um, seventeen zones. Um, uh, it was a monster. It was a really massive house, uh, and and it had just the fine detail that was in it. Um, one of my favorite books right now on, on houses is The Not-So-Big House um, and that whole idea that you can build these big McMansions, these big boxes, or you can shrink them and take all that extra money and put it into the detail work and make a really beautiful, rich environment. And, uh, uh, you know, while I was building that those monster homes, I did have at one time visions of um, when I was leaving that company, I had visions of... Uh, getting a degree in architecture and engineering and designing and building my own house is taking that level of detail and bring it down to a level that uh, the average homeowner could buy and afford. Um, that, to me, is an interesting house, not just sheetrock squares or cubes that people live in. Absolutely. Those seem like nightmare, <laughs> nightmare neighborhoods. <laughs> and I think we've seen that in some ways. Mm. Well, you've spent most of your academic career, and, and this fantastic memoir, which I have to say is interesting and, and lyrically written and ties in uh, a lot of elements from living and, and what was going on in, in your mind and, and also, as you mentioned, how, how it has been processed since uh, those times were experienced. But since then, since those mm. moments, you, you've entered an, I'm using quotes here, by academic sort of phase. Yeah. Um, in your life, where, where you've worked to build theory and to provide advice, um, uh, particularly to, to corporations, as far as I understand it, it to get engaged <coughs> in environmental issues. Mm -hmm. So what is different between building a house and, and building theory hmm. that advances our knowledge of things? Uh, I mean, both have a logic and a structure, I guess. Um, I think that the it's more I, I a better way to maybe phrase that question is what is the theory in this memoir? There you go. And uh, this represents a direction I want to start to go in, and that is the idea of helping students start to think more about their career as a calling, uh, particularly in management. Um, if we continue to produce MBAs whose only or primary objective is to make themselves as rich as they can, um, then we've got a problem. And I don't think that that's going to lead to very satisfying lives. Um, um, I do see it. a lot of students come in with these really noble ambitions, and then it comes down for graduation. And, you know, where are you getting a job? Well, I'm getting at McKinsey for $150,000 with a $30,000 signing bonus. And it's very hard to say at that point, well, I'm going to take this job with the World Wildlife Fund for $60,000. And so the pressure for conformity becomes Gosh, in my world, 60000 sounds pretty good. It's going to be a lot less than that. Mm. But I think that we need a transformation within business to get people to start to think about the, the real power that managers have in this world and the responsibility that comes with that. And to see the great power of really making the world a better place through business. I mean, let's face it, any of the solutions to the problems we face in this world, they have to come from business. That drivetrain under your hood, the buildings you live in, um, all the solutions, whether poverty at all, it's it's going to come from business. And and unless you get some people that are more internally directed, and I don't think it's that unusual an idea. I just want to give voice to it. There's a lot of people in business who see what they do as uh, you know a responsibility to their employees, a responsibility to their customers. I mean, responsibility needs to be brought into the dialogue a lot more um, uh, in terms of what we teach people in business schools. And my limited understanding of 
more of the institutional history of how these ideas developed is that the University of Michigan was very integral in thinking about the sort of triple bottom line, the, the corporate mm-hmm. uh, and social and environmental responsibility. Yeah, sure. The, the Herb Institute, formerly Kemp, um, started in 1992. Uh, Stu Hart got it going. It was one of the first programs of its kind in the country and uh, a model that others are trying to copy now. Um, this thinking on the idea of management as a calling is not just for those students, though. It's for any student. I, I find it puzzling that a student can graduate from business school and say, you know, maybe I'll go work for Coke, or maybe I'll go work for a hospital, or maybe I'll work for, you know, the steel company. Can people really be so broad in their interest? Is there really nothing there that says, no, I really, you know, I'm really jazzed by making cars, and I really get a buzz out of making cars, and I want to make cars. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I just think that, you know, is a real strong driver here is get people to slow down and say, you know, unlike me that graduated with a chemical engineering degree and then decided what a chemical engineer does, I think a lot of people start an MBA and at the end say, what does an MBA do? Because um, once you start, you're running pretty fast. You don't have time to stop and contemplate. And uh, I really want to try and help students do that. That's fantastic. And, and something really about thinking that it is... Uh, that educational development is is more than just learning things in a book or learning how yeah. to think, but learning how to think within yourself. To to have the the judgment to to, to make value judgments, because uh, you'll find them creeping up on you when you least expect it. You can go into the hotel industry. You can find yourself the CEO of a major hotel chain. Guess what? There's a good chance that uh, you're a pornographer because a major bottom line in most hotel chains is in room porn. Hmm. Is that what you intended to do? Is that intended to be? You know, if you don't, if you're not prepared to start to ask yourself questions like that, then you're going to get caught off guard. And, you know, I'm not trying to get moralistic about it, but I'm just trying to say that if you, you know, you're um, Lloyd Dauber, he's laying out what he wants to do. um, And the challenge is to hold true to that as you go through your life. Absolutely. My own limited experience, I, uh, when I was working at a nonprofit, I felt great every day because even if I was doing a task that was fairly mundane in a particular way, when I left work at the end of the day, I knew it was for a cause that I truly believed in. And it doesn't have to just be that. In the book, I have a, a discussion with a friend of mine who owns a shoe store. And he says, look, Andy, I, I clean toilets. But I feel good about it because they're my toilets, mm-hmm. um, and it's my company, and I feel great satisfaction in doing that, and I'm providing for my family. Whatever it is, whatever your calling is, uh, go for it. But figure out what that is before you allow others to channel it for you. Tough question, but do you have some uh, suggestions on how to find your calling? Well, you know, um, it's uh, it's uh, through mentors. It's through uh, people you bounce ideas off of. It's through taking some time out and slowing down and really analyzing less in your head, I think, and more in your in your gut and your heart. I mean... One one difference about this book than my other work is in my academic work, I have to lay out what I can prove, what I know. Mm -hmm. And this book is what I believe. And what you believe is much more important in how you get through your world than what you can prove and what you know. Um, Contrary to what we may teach in a business school education, most leaders don't sit down, run regression analysis, and the correlation that's the strongest decides which way they want to go. They, they, it's, it's character, it's leadership, and, uh, and, and we need to focus more on doing that. And, uh, and that, that, that's a major part of the book. Well, I certainly recommend that we all run out and get one. I many. Get, get a lot of them. <laughs> get them for your family or younger brother who's in college or whatever. Um, but but it's, it, it is certainly uh, an inspiration to read and to see about that journey. Do you have any thoughts that so, – so it ends at this uh, sort of moment where, where you're finishing up. And there's great discussions of the sort of intimate uh, – uh, working relationships that that form around your experiences, mm-hmm. and that was one of the most, I think, enriching parts of of the book for me. Um, but will there be a, a a memoirs part two? I don't know. I mean, a I, nerd's apprentice or something. I, I have some friends who have read it and said you just sort of gloss over the fact that you left construction and now you're a professor. How in the world did that happen? And I even allude to it and say that's a story for another day. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'll write it. Um, I don't know if it's an interesting story. But in time, if I do start to think that there's a lesson there, uh, then maybe I will. But if I don't, I'm not just going to tell a story to puff myself up and tell you another story about the life of Andy Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems like a humble way to do it. <laughs> wow, we're running out of time, and we've got to hear about real farms. So We do. Why don't we hear about what's in season? Because it's... Uh, yes. 
your dreams. <laughs> that was the cheesiest thing I've ever said on this radio show. But <laughs> I say that every week. <laughs> Because every week it's just worse and worse. But I, I do actually want to give you a, a little bit of news that might put myself out of a job as your food correspondent. Because there, every week I come to you and I tell you about what's in season, what's growing these days, what you can find at the farmer's market. And in yet another example of a human's job being replaced by technology, someone has developed a website to tell you just that. Um, Carl Rosane, who's actually a University of Michigan alum, who went out to the Bay Area to work for Google and work on the Android iPhone iPhone like object um, has come back to Ann Arbor and developed this amazing website called Real Time Farms. And how it's really going to work is um, people, it's, it's a crowdsourcing model. And so people will go to their farmer's market, take photos of what's available at the farmer's market on their handy little smartphone devices, send them into the website with tags, and they'll immediately be posted for people at home waking up, drinking their coffee to see what's available at the farmer's market. So it's this this sort of social networking plus business networking advertising model, and he's eventually going to expand it to help restaurants connect with farmers to source more local food to farmers. He wants to branch out to the um, nonprofit organizations in the area that work on local food. So it's going to be this, this really incredible massive network of everything that's going on in local food in the area and, you know, at its most simple, just a way for you to know what's fresh in season at the farmer's market. So you should check it out. It's realtimefarms.com. And if you go there right now, it's not live yet, um, but you can sign up for his email list and he'll let you know when it's coming up. So that is so cool. There you go. I uh, put myself out of a job, but you can thank me for that later. No, you can help promote that. There'll be, there'll be new opportunities for you within that. Yeah. I'm still going to come here and tell you all about vitamins and and phytochemicals <laughs> and omega-3 fatty acids. So no website's going to do that. Wonderful. As much as I'd like to editorialize on how wonderful the farmer's market is right now, um, because it is coming alive again. It uh, really is. Uh, uh, lots of folks out there. I think we should end on a quote and then take it to a tune. So this is another uh, quote uh, that Andy uh, had in his book. This is the legendary Henry David Thoreau. I learned this at least by my experiment, that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected 